Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today we're exploring a fantastic debut novel from Tasmanian author Robbie Arnott. Flames is a strange and wonderful road trip around Tasmania that has more than a few people wondering, could it possibly be true? My name is Andrew Popel, and I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Together, we explore books, writing, and literary culture, sharing stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes, and talking with the creators. Great Conversations is a weekly podcast that allows me to get deeper into these issues and deliver more of the books that you love. We have been doing a marathon all this week, doing an episode a day, covering some of the fantastic stories that have already hit our shelves this year. In Flames, we meet Levi and Charlotte McAllister shortly after their mother has died and been cremated, only to return to the family as a creature of flesh and fern from the wilderness where her ashes were scattered. It's not so unusual, though, and she means no malice. You see, many of the McAllister women have returned to visit their family after death, sporting the raiments of the natural world. Look, Flames has been an absolute highlight for me this year, and I'm excited to share more of this amazing story that I'm really, I'm only just teasing here. I am joined on the line from Tasmania by Robbie Arnott. Robbie's writing has appeared in Kill Your Darlings and The Lifted Brow, and today we're going to be discussing his debut novel, Flames, which has been a sleeper hit for me this year with its fantastical depictions of the Tasmanian wilderness. I've, I've fallen in love with this book. Welcome, Robbie. Thanks for joining me on Final Draft. Thanks, Andrew. It's uh, good to be here, kind of over the phone. <laughs> um, now, look, Flames. The McAllister family does death differently. When Charlotte and Levi's mother returns, only to combust on their estranged father's lawn, it drives Levi to build a unique coffin for his sister, while Charlotte flees into her grief. So begins a strange and unique road trip around Tasmania's wilderness that drives us from north to south and amidst the amazing landscape. That's... um. That's kind of a teaser. That's something that we, we find out very early on. And I'm going to throw a little spoiler warning in here because there is so much to discover in Flames. If a little leaks into our conversation, uh, I, want the, I want the listeners to know there is so much more magic on the page. But, Robbie, look, conceptually, Flames is vast. What's the gestation of a story like this? Where did it start for you? Uh, look, about a year ago, I was writing a pretty realist, straight sort of Australian novel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was asked to do a reading at a, a writing event, and I thought oh, I'll do some of this. And I read it back, and I realised how boring it was. And I, I realised I just couldn't read this out loud to anyone. I'll put them to sleep. So you know, and if I didn't have anything else to read, so I started writing something that I didn't know if it was any good, but I just thought at least it'll be different. Mm-hmm. And I ended up writing what is now the first chapter of Flames. Okay. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I went and I read it out and it went pretty well and people got really into it and I thought I might try and turn this into a book. I'll, I'll see what I can do. I was My confidence was really low in my writing at that point. I didn't think I would ever get anything published. So I just thought I may as well try and write the weirdest, strangest, most captivating thing I can and just see if I can make it work. And that's that's really where it came from. Obviously, there's lots of other influences too, but that was the very starting point. I think this next next question may only make sense to people that have already read Flames, but did it unfold then in a linear fashion? I'm I'm almost a little surprised that it began at a be- at the beginning. Um, the the way the different elements sort of jump out. Um, no, from there it it didn't really go linearly. I don't even really know how it happened. Um, 
I had a bunch of strands of different characters and genres and different ideas I wanted to weave into it to keep to make sure the book kept surprising people and kept feeling fresh with each new chapter. I, I really wanted people to get to a new chapter and think, I, I have no idea what's going on here, and then to be reassured as the grander story starts to come together. But I just kind of cobbled it together. I threw a lot of things out. Um, I made a lot of stuff up, and I just... About three quarters of the way through, I think I thought, oh, this is kind of making some form of sense. I'll just make sure I finish it. And I never thought it would get published, but it was kind of fun. It's good to hear that some of that stuff was made up. But is it in your afterword where or, or there's something in the book that sort of suggests that, or is it to the uh, to some of the more fantastical elements, which uh, which would be wonderful, but also a little terrifying to encounter? Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, it's a bit like that. I've had a few readers and a few different people who aren't from Tasmania assume that some of the things in the book are real, which has been the best feedback I could get. I think it's yeah, really fun. But no, unfortunately, there's not that much weird stuff down there. There's just other weird stuff. Is that something unique to Tasmania, that people can look at that vast wilderness and say, wow, maybe it could. There may be somewhere deep where it's perhaps completely untouched. Something fantastical like this might happen? Um, I think so. Because um, so much of Tasmania is, is still forest, thank goodness. Um, mm. And there is a, definitely a, a feeling of unknowing about it to, to a lot of people, I think, um, and, and even to me. And I've lived here my whole life, basically. But, yeah, there's definitely an otherness at play there, which I, which I kind of leaned on and, and tried to make best use of. Um, now, we're being a bit coy here. We're talking around the book, but let's come back to that beginning you, that you began with. We have Levi and Charlotte McAllister mourning the loss of their mother, albeit in very different ways. What is it about grief that can alter us and, and drives a story like Flames? Or is it, is it more that grief clarifies us? Who were these characters for you? Uh, what I wanted to explore here with grief and with these two characters uh, was, in a way, the way that we're conditioned to deal with uh, things, troubles we go through, and particular, in particular in this instance, grief. And I wanted to address how, at least where I'm from, uh, showing emotion isn't something that men are really meant to do or accepted to do. So often men, uh, particularly in Australian male culture, is, is to just get on with it and deal with it and not really talk about it. And so in Levi, I wanted to create a character who who takes this to an extreme and his only response to something horrible happening is to find some course of action and doesn't actually solve anything but feels that by doing something is how he's working through the problem. It's, and, al- it's almost ridiculously stereotypical that he's a man and he decides to build something. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to take that to an extreme um, in, in many different ways to, to show the kind of twisted logic of it. And, and as the book goes on, he obviously becomes... Uh, a bit unhinged and things don't really go very well for him and he's driven by this obsession to be to be trying to fix things and do something but going the total wrong way about it. He's always completely certain though that he is he is clear-minded as he moves forward which is is probably also another potent uh, a potent point especially for men to examine in their own own perspectives on the world. Yeah, you know, you know guys in the, who like DIY and they just mm. They take on projects they should just never do. Mm. Um, in many ways, he's kind of an embodiment of that in some ways. Like, uh, you know, a lawyer trying to pave his own driveway or something, and he just shouldn't do it, but he does it anyway, and it, the result is terrible. But he can look at that and go, well, I paved that. 
mm. and uh, th- that sort of thing. I've, I've always been fascinated by that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, you're making me think of so many, so many stories that I've heard that I probably shouldn't bring up in case some of those people are actually listening. Um, I'm interested, though, at its heart, you explore our relationship with nature and in turn its relationship with us. And you do it in such a unique way that I'm just sort of teasing here. Nature and its incarnations weave their way throughout flames. Would, would you like us to start looking at the natural world differently, particularly, I guess, from the Tasmanian context? Um, oh, yeah, I love it. That sounds great. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to be in a position to tell people what they should and shouldn't do, but um, I'm completely entranced by uh, the natural world and the landscapes, and, and being from Tasmania, I'm surrounded by it and in it all the time. And I guess what I wanted to achieve, if anything, with the, the elements of nature in this book is to is to kind of create a portrait of how it feels to to be out there in it and to and to go out and see these wonderful mm. things and being immersed in an incredible natural world that is almost impossible to describe. So so I described it in a way that was completely fantastical mm. because even though that's not exactly how it is, it is how it feels. I'm reading another book at the moment, as in I, I put it down to have this conversation with you, that describes a group of friends revisiting a, a five-day trek that they, they took uh, when they were younger and... I'm, I was struck, uh, juxtaposing it with Flames, by how this is this is a, a realist novel, um, but we have a similar language of the transformative nature of of being out in in the natural world, and it seems you've you've only taken it a logical step further, and to suggest that that process isn't necessarily entirely internal to us looking around, and that the nat- natural world has uh, almost uh, an embodied ability to to influence us. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I climbed up a small peak uh, off the back of Mount Wellington near Hobart the other day, and there was it was really foggy and misty. And as we were going up, we were surrounded by cloud. I could barely see anything, just our footsteps in front of us. But when we got to the top, the peak of the mountain was poking through the clouds. So, and as we looked around, we could see you know the vast southwest wilderness stretched our way in, away from us, and all the other mountains were poking up through the cloud as well. So it looked like islands in the ocean, and it's a completely otherworldly experience, and while you can explain it, it makes perfect sense. The, way, the things it does for you when you're standing on top of this mountain is if it feels like you're in a foreign ocean and not, and not yeah, on a hill in Tasmania. It, it, uh, it really kind of messes you up inside in some ways and, and changes the way you look at things in ways that are hard to describe. So trying to capture that somehow was, was what I wanted to do. Yeah. Was it always there, or is the, is the landscape exerting influence? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what is that influence and and what's it doing to you, basically? Mm. One of my favourite chapters uh, in Flames is Salt, uh, which is the se- second chapter. Um, and it's the story of Carl and his relationship with a seal uh, that becomes something of a familiar, uh, as close as probably anyone ever will be to him in his life. And look, it was, it was enough. It, it is enough to bring the reader to tears. True story. I'm... That, that story really got me. It, it felt like a standalone story. I almost imagined that you had written it as a short story and then woven it in. Can you tell me more about Salt? Because I, I, I just truly loved that story in the book. Yeah, um, I didn't write that as standalone. I always had a really firm position in my mind that there would be little hints towards the, the greater story overall. But, mm. but that was, that was the, the idea for that chapter. I had years ago when I was traveling through 
um, southern New South Wales, northern Victorian border. And um, I went to the town of Eden on the coast where they have this history of a big whaling station where they hunted in partnership with killer whales. Oh, and wow. the killer and the killer whales, it's it's there's a killer whale museum there and stuff. And but for decades they would go hunt together, and the killer whales would get the tongues of the larger whales, and the whalers would get the oil. And uh, it just rattled around inside my head. And and doing this with a seal, a, a fisherman in Tasmania, and having a seal partner, kind of spun out from hearing that story. And and it was basically a reimagined version of that set in Tasmania, where they're hunting these huge tuna that don't exist, um, which has really disappointed some people because I had one lady was sure that it really did happen and she wanted to come to Tasmania to see the fishermen doing it. And I had to tell her that, no, I, I made that all up. How do you, or did you, or how, how might you, in, in hindsight, go about researching a chapter like that? Because I imagine it could be fun and dangerous. Um, I'm going to be really honest here. I don't do that much research. Um, I kind of lean on trying to make the ideas as crazy, not as crazy, but as inventive as possible. Mm. And then what I do with research is I, I just go back and make sure I haven't done anything really wrong or bad. Um, I'm not a very academic writer or person, but basically the, where the, all the language and the writing of that came from is, is growing up on the coast and doing a lot of fishing and, and trying to just push my imagination and, and the language I use to as far as the boundaries as I can. So no deep sea diving and communing with seals in the in the local um, zoo? No, no, there's uh, too many sharks. <laughs> um, following on, though, from that, we have this amazing relationship between Carl and the seal that, that they hunt together from his youth. And I was really interested in the ways that you depict intimate relationships. Basically, uh, as we can see with Carl and the seal, you explode the idea of typical partnerships and you create these really deep felt bonds in, in what many might consider really unlikely places. Is there something you wanted to explore about the ways that we love or maybe that we could uh, aspire to? Yeah, I, I did want to show, show examples of how connections can be formed between two people or not even people, between people and animals in, in ways that we don't expect and, and can't control. Um, that we're completely powerless over who we love and what we love and what sort of form or shape that love takes mm. and and then how we express it as well. So that's why I wanted to show the character of Levi um, you know, having this huge, huge love for his sister and, and going about expressing it in such a ridiculous way by trying to build her a coffin and to have a fisherman who's who's got such a huge connection with his seal that he hunts with but never actually talks about it with anybody. Mm. Um, and doesn't know how to deal with it when the seal is no longer there. And and I just wanted to show partnerships of that way that in their nature were strange, but in their relationships were very, very real. One of the most interesting of those relationships, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread really carefully here because it's a very central part of the novel, uh, <clears throat> really, I guess, addresses the idea of, of the transformative nature of love. And we... We talk about that, we use that word transformative a lot, and you have a, a truly transformative experience because of love, and it kind of comes about through a process of, of male self-examination, which is, is probably not something many of us are, are used to. Um, yeah, how, how can, can you talk to me about that maybe being as coy as I am? Because it is, it is really such a, a, a wonderful revelation in the novel, and I don't want to spoil that for anyone. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is hard to talk about that particular chapter but uh, what I will say is that um, I think men think about themselves way too much 
um, both as men in general, but also just as their individual selves. And what I wanted to present here was a person who has spent a very, very long time focusing only really on themselves. Mm. And when that train of thought is disrupted and they realise that they feel compelled to direct that much attention and that much love towards something else, that it wreaks a change in them that is hard to deal with in many ways. Even if it's initially seen as a, a wonderful thing, it can be destructive as well. I want to um, I want to maybe close off our, our chat with something that we touched on before, uh, just this idea of the fantastical nature of flames. And you talked a little bit about the where that gestated from in your writing. And there is so much of this novel that's beyond our everyday. Like there were times I, I was thinking of writers like Neil Gaiman, um, particularly for the sort of the road tripping element, um, a bit of bit of Twin Peaks as well. But how do you feel about the term uh, the term magical realism or or any sort of genre and flames at the moment now that it's out there? Uh, look, I'm I'm happy. People can call the book whatever they like, whatever they like, and I'm I'm happy. Um, there definitely is magical realist elements in there. I mean, I'm I'm hesitant to call it a magical realist novel for a couple of reasons. Mm. Um, one being that just because there's lots of other genres and other things in the book as well that I'm playing that mm. it plays with. And the other thing is that magical realism was a term invented in South America as a way of undoing some of the terrible things that happened throughout colonialism. And like, I'm a white guy and my book doesn't do anything like that, so I, I wouldn't want it to be seen to be appropriating that sort of movement. But at the same time, yeah, there's heaps of magical realist stuff in there. So mm. I guess that's how I feel about it. I, uh, yeah, I just, when people ask me, what's your book like? I say, look, it's pretty weird, but uh, people seem to not mind it. Yeah, it, it strikes me uh, much in the same way as Charlotte Wood's The Natural Way of Things did. It's that three or four years ago now where it is a book that people are going to try and fit somewhere, but it really just, it's it's a journey. I mean, We've we've talked about sort of the road trip element to it, but the book reading the book itself is a journey and moving. We haven't touched on sort of the detective fiction aspect of it, and we haven't touched on, uh, yeah, some of the some of the darker aspects. There is so much in this book. Yeah, I I just tried to pack a lot in there and, and throw a few things on the table and see if they connected. I love that Charlotte Wood book, by the way. What a great book! I think all your uh, listeners should read it. Oh yeah, we we we've I've spent a lot. People are bored of hearing me telling them that they should read <laughs> okay. Charlotte, the natural way of things. Um, yeah, it's such a great book. Such a great book. We can't end our conversation talking about anything other than flames. I'm speaking with Robbie Arnott. Uh, his novel is Flames, and it is a wonderful exploration of Tasmania and. Uh, relationships in the wilderness don't don't travel to tasmania looking for this book but definitely travel to your bookstore and pick up this book robbie thank you so much for for joining me for the conversation this morning uh thank you andrew it's been a real pleasure yeah cheers that's it for this great conversation with robbie arnott robbie's debut novel is flames and it's out now through text publishing Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to hear more Great Conversations from Final Draft, hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. This week it has been a marathon. There have been, has been an episode a day. So if you've missed anything, subscribe and you will get more great books, more great interviews in your phone or wherever you're listening every week. 
If you want to keep up on the latest books, writing and literary culture, well, you can tune in Saturdays or you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back next week with our regular scheduling every Monday morning, the Great Conversations podcast from Final Draft. I'll see you then.